This is an ABC podcast. Nissan Bolivinaka. Hello, Alan Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Aggie here for your Tuesday morning. Well, what can you expect on the show today? Uh, to Fiji, where appointment of Attorney General was unconstitutional. So Home Affairs Minister Pio Tikodundua says a review is now the best course of action. The nation can trust that the decision will be in the best interest of our democracy, its pillars and our people. Also, a coronial inquest into the controversial death of a Samoan woman in prison. I can't imagine how low her mental health would have gone, not getting the proper help, feeling like she has no one to turn to. And when she does voice her concerns, it was either restraint or spithood. And it's been two months since the Maui wildfires. We'll cross live to the island nation on the latest and why one person has created a lifeline for many of the displaced residents. Stay tuned for more on these stories. I'm Aggie Dubol and you're tuning into Pacific Beat. Seven months after it was slammed by twin Category 4 cyclones, Vanuatu is back in the firing line. Cyclone Lola has strengthened to Category 4, set to hit the northern parts of Vanuatu, bringing heavy rain and gale force winds. So joining us this morning with the latest is Jamie Brown, our reporter in Vanuatu and a member of the VPTC newsroom there. So with that, I say good morning, Jamie. Hi, good morning, Aggie. Thank you for having me this morning. Absolutely. Thank you very much again for uh, joining us and giving us the latest. Yeah, with the cyclone, what has Met Office been saying uh, and what is the latest there, Jamie? Uh, yes, uh, from the uh, latest information we caught from the media of, uh, office this morning regarding uh, Cyclone Lola, um, it is obviously now, as we all know, Category 4 cyclone, which means it will be very strong, uh, destructive, and um, also uh, cause roof and building damages. Uh, that's houses which people usually have in rural communities can be damaged by a Category 4 cyclone. So uh, people are advised to get cover somewhere strong and safe, and also people will expect to experience power outages for some period of time. Um, the cyclone is now directly affecting the northern provinces, Torpa and Panama, at the moment as a red alert is issued for the two provinces. And yes, uh, just so we know, Agnes, uh, red alert means that the cyclone is expected to hit within the next 24 hour. And so no one is, is to go outdoors, but stay locked inside their home until the cyclone passed. Mm, thank you for that. Uh, yellow alert, yeah, yellow alert is issued for Sanma and Malamba province right now, which means they'll be expecting a tropical cyclone alert within the next 36 hours and people advised to be prepared. Mm. And uh, just this morning, yes. around 5 a.m., Agnes, a uh, blue alert is issued for Sheva, which means we'll be expecting a cyclone within the next 48 hours. Mm. Um, but last night, though, JV, uh, was when it was supposed to intensify. So have you actually heard from people maybe in Torba and Sanma province? Um, yes. So I caught in touch with our correspondents in Torba at uh, 1 a.m. this morning. And he was telling me, telling me that uh, they're experiencing rain, but not that much. Um, winds are definitely picking up uh, at Torba, and the sea is very rough at the moment. Uh, just yesterday, late afternoon, our correspondent at Torba uploaded a footage showing uh, huge waves crashing up the shorelines near their provincial headquarters and with a very windy atmosphere. So, yes, uh, however, around midday yesterday, it seems that people at the northern provinces are actually getting the 
information seriously, which is very good. They had done a good amount of work in terms of preparing for the cyclone. For instance, people at Torpa province were covering the thatch houses with uh, palm leaves, which is an old practice still used today to help protect the thatch roof uh, from being blown away by strong winds from the cyclone. And same goes for the Salma and Panama province. Can I ask, in, in terms of communication, how is that often uh, uh, do resonance? Uh, are they updated via phones or the mobile phones? How How is the communication um, going out to the, the residents of Vanuatu? And so currently, um, the people up at north would receive um, uh, information mostly at, uh, on radio, on radio outlets. So... Um, um, the radio connection um, at the moment is uh, very clear, uh, despite the cyclone um, that is here. And has there been any advice from the government? Um, yes, um, there's uh, precautions uh, from the government uh, saying that people would uh, should stay indoors uh, when there's a red alert, especially for the northern provinces. And um, and now that uh, this morning we received blue alert for Shaba provinces. And so they advise that people um, should avoid going out and uh, ships also hold um, uh, in ports, not to leave um, ports and also airlines uh, cancelled and rescheduled their um, uh, normal flights plan. How are things in Port Vila though, Jamie? Are they expecting it to hit there? Yes, um, we received around this morning 5am a blue alert warning from the meteor. And so um, at the moment, we're experiencing intervals of rain here and windy conditions at the moment. And um, it has been like that all throughout the night. Um, winds are definitely picking up here. We're experiencing showers of rains. And you could definitely tell by the atmosphere right now that there is a cyclone inside the country. And you could actually uh, feel its presence here. And it's something that people here are used to. Um, yes, yeah, so here yeah. in Portfila, we can yeah, see tree branches have been cut down near power lines. And also sheeps, uh, yeah advice to take precautions while traveling out of uh, Port Vila. Yeah, I know it's something you don't want to be used to, though, Jamie. I, I, I understand, you know, <laughs> Cyclone yeah. Kevin and Judy was uh, only just about seven months ago. How has the country recovered from that? Um, we, we're still recovering. Um, um, the country is still re- recovering, and uh, we see schools uh, still using tents. Um, but um, now that we had a new that a new cyclone has um, arrived here in Vanuatu. And so it, it brings more worries up uh, to the people and uh, whether um, uh, they say, uh, whether they, they'll get, uh, they'll be recovering after that. I know, look, heaven forbid that there is any sort of injuries or any deaths that come of this. Um, but how well prepared do you feel that the country is, considering that it is now sitting at a Category 4? I mean, given the, um, yeah, given the uh, information yesterday and also um, from our correspondents up from the northern province, which the cyclone is um, affecting, they're, they're getting the full impact of the cyclone. Um, they're actually prepared and um, it seems people are actually taking uh, the information from the media very seriously and uh, they're preparing. Um, they, it seems yesterday they they are um, pulling out, they're taking out the boats from the sea and... Um, Upshore and also um, um, covering the houses with uh, uh, palm thatches or leaves to keep it blown away from that. But I think um, people are actually taking the information uh, seriously and, and they're actually well prepared. 
Oh, that's good to hear. And then, of course, there are some shelters that would be set up, right, if anything does happen. Yes, 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 uh, definitely. There are some uh, emergency centers that people can take cover if they feel like they're, they're not safe where they, where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those that are in Vanuatu there, Jamie, where can they find the latest in regards to information just to be kept up to date? Um, so they are here in, um, they are in Port Phila. Um We actually um, also stay tuned in the radio and also get information from the VMGD website on um, yeah, VMG website and also the Facebook page. Uh, well, you're there yourself, Jamie. How have you been feeling, though? How has the atmosphere been amongst the um, community? Um, it's very, um, you could tell that there's a cyclone here. And, um, yeah, the place is, um, uh, people are actually preparing. And you could see people out that uh, they're cutting branches around. And, um, yeah, to me, to me, um, this is not a new feeling because um, we've been through so much as a cyclones, uh, two cyclones in the past um, March this year. But, um, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's something that... Um, um, we we know how to get around when it's here in uh, when when it's in the country. Jamie, look, we just want to wish you a whole lot of safe uh, safety there with um, you know the community in Vanuatu. We appreciate that you do report on this, but that you do keep yourself safe alongside the community there. Um, thank you so much. No worries. That, of course, is Jamie Brown, ABC's reporter in Port Vila, a member of the Vanuatu Broadcasting Television Corporation newsroom. Pacific Beat. We go to Fiji now where the political climate has been reduced after Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka backed down on the appointment of a new Attorney General. Lands Minister Filimoni Vosarongo was his choice as the government's chief lawyer. However, Fiji's Law Society and the military said this appointment was unconstitutional as Mr Vosarongo had been convicted of misconduct in office. Home Affairs Minister Pio Dikonduotua says both the Prime Minister and Military Commander Johnny agreed that a review was the best course of action. We understand the gravity of the situation and the implications for our nations. The Prime Minister, the Honourable Sitiweni Rambuka, recognises his prerogative. We'll be making an official announcement regarding the position of Attorney General in due course. The nation can trust that the decision will be in the best interest of our democracy its pillars and our people. And may I conclude our dialogue, my dialogue with the Commander and the Prime Minister, have been focused on safeguarding the rule of law and instilling public trust. We remain committed to these principles and ensure and assure our citizens that every decision is taken with their best interests at heart. We extend our, and I extend personally, our gratitude to the Commander of the Republic of Fiji Military Forces for his invaluable insights and to the Fijian people for their understanding and of their patience. That is Fiji's Home Affairs Minister, Pio Diko Duandoa. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. 
Cervical cancer is killing women in the Pacific. And if Vanuatu is not already dealing with quite a bit, it's estimated that in Vanuatu, women are seven times more likely to die from cervical cancer than those in Australia. The disease is preventable, and as Talia Auli'itia reports, Vanuatu is hoping to use early interventions to become the first Pacific country to eliminate the disease. Breaking the news to our patients who, you know, who can potentially be our mothers, our grandmothers, or sisters, or aunties. It's very heartbreaking for us. Huh? That's Dr. Margaret Tereri Lehi, an obstetrician gynecologist working at Port Vila's Central Hospital. All we can offer for them here in our setting is basically uh, palliative care or just tender loving care in the comfort of our resource limited settings. Um, it's not well managed as we don't have the capacity to effectively manage those cancers, especially cervical cancer. Cervical cancer is the second most common cancer among women in Vanuatu. And as Dr. Tereri Lehi explains, it often becomes a death sentence because symptoms don't present until it's too late and that's further exacerbated by the lack of health infrastructure. But cervical cancer is preventable and early interventions can tackle human papillomavirus or HPV, which causes most cervical cancers. Through the program, eliminating cervical cancer in the Western Pacific Pacific, Vanuatu aims to be the first Pacific country to eliminate cervical cancer. I'm very, very confident that Vanuatu can become one of the first countries in the world to move across that elimination threshold and be able to say, you know, we have eliminated cervical cancer as a public health problem in our country. That's Professor Andrew Vallelli. He's from the Kirby Institute, which is collaborating with Vanuatu's health ministry and various other organisations to roll out the program, which has been funded by investors, including the Mindaroo Foundation. The program, which is in line with the WHO's global elimination strategy, has a three-pronged approach. The 90% vaccine coverage target for young girls, the 70% screening target for age-eligible women, and the 90% target for the effective management of both pre-invasive and also invasive disease. And these three elements, the vaccination, the screening and the treatment, they are very much complementary in terms of reducing burden and moving us towards elimination. Until now, vaccination, screening and treatment for cervical cancer have not been widely implemented across the Pacific. Dr Tereri Lehi, who leads a team of doctors rolling out the program, says the new same-day HPV screening is a game-changer. It's a turning point for women in Vanuatu, you know, accessing the service. They don't need to have somebody else examine them or collect the sample. They do it themselves after good awareness and information given to them. So uh, we've seen a lot of improvement in terms of women coming forward just because they have the right information and you have the right people there to advocate for women's health. The HPV vaccinations target girls aged between 9 to 13. Dr Jenny Stevens is Vanuatu's Director of Public Health and she says they're working on educating parents so they can give their consent. We're really looking forward to ensuring that the parents are well informed. Parents need to understand that for the good health of the children, we want to make sure that in 10 years down the line, the number of cervical cancer cases will be reduced. Information is vital as the elimination program is rolled out across the vast array of islands that make up Vanuatu. The different islands are different, different cultures and the way we advocate for cervical cancer will be different from for different communities. And it's, it's got to be an issue for us in advocating for cervical cancer.
but because it comes back to the culture. A man are dominant in their communities, and uh, sometimes the women feel that the husband that, or the spouse have the right over their decision. So that's something that we really, as the Ministry of Health, would really need to look into that. Though Dr Stephen says attitudes are changing and she hopes the establishment of a targeted elimination strategy by the Ministry of Health will help the country achieve their goal. We really want to make sure that the fund to have as a standalone national um, elimination strategy for um, difficult cancer, that we want that to stand alone so that the government can see that it is something that we really need to put a lot of effort into it. And when we have that strategy, then that's something that we can work towards. We need to um, really step up and try to address that. We don't want to lose women every year. While huge challenges lie ahead, the overall feeling is one of optimism. And that's because it's largely women leading the charge. With their experience, they themselves become the advocates. They go out and they spread the word to their colleagues at work and empower other women in the communities or family members to come forward for screening. So I think that is a very uh, positive response that is being uh, observed in the community here. It's Dr. Margaret Tererelehi, lead doctor for a program hoping to end cervical cancer in Vanuatu, ending that report from Talia Auliatia. Now, the daughter of a Samoan woman who died in an Australian prison says her mother wasn't given appropriate care. A coronial inquest is examining the death of 44-year-old Celessa Tafaifa, who died of a heart attack after being restrained by prison guards in 2021. Video footage shows a spit hood, a controversial item used to stop someone from spitting or biting, being placed over Tafaifa's head. During the interaction, she's heard saying, I can't breathe, four times. Mr. Tafaifa his daughter, Salote Isaako, says her mother's death is a tragedy and is calling for spit hoods to be banned in Queensland. Sitting in court today, hearing people that barely knew my mum tell us things about her violent behaviour and everything that they've mentioned in there, to me personally, as her daughter, as a family and as her legal team, is very unfair. I know who my mum is. There are many parts of her that weren't mentioned and her mental health was one of those many things. She has been mentally ill for the longest time and this was not addressed properly and prison was definitely not the place where it could be catered. She reacted to the prison guards in the only way her mind knew how. She's tried addressing her mental health as mentioned in there, she's asked for her medication and wasn't given an answer that would soothe her mind. Instead, she was given a straight-up no. And she reacted, just like any of us would. Her behaviour in there does not paint who she is, does not define who she was as a mother, who she was as a sister, or who she was to our family. To us, she was just this massive person filled with love and when her mental health illnesses would kick in we knew how to bring her back it wasn't a hidden secret everyone knew that she had mental health issues everyone that would connect with her everyone that would conversate with her knew so for my family it was a hard day it was a hard morning for my legal team 
it was also just as hard for them. But I feel like it should be known that her mental health played a huge part in this. The fact that she was in DU, coming out of that, I can't imagine how low her mental health would have gone. Not getting the proper help, feeling like she has no one to turn to. And when she does voice her concerns, it was either restraints or spithood. My main concern is that we're the last family to have to deal with this. That everyone inside, women, men, kids that are in detention centres, who have mental health illnesses, have the right, because it is a human right, everyone has a right to a proper healthcare service. My mum couldn't get it. They didn't address it. They didn't cater to that. So hopefully the next person that needs it, they're given it. Instead of the straight up no, they're given an answer that would either soothe their mind or have them walk away happy instead of trying to fight for those medications and that right. My mum was a huge part of my family. I'm her only child. She was one of 10 kids, eldest. She had her own responsibilities as the eldest. In our culture, it didn't matter what type of illnesses you had. She knew what her role was to her younger siblings, to her parents, to me, to her granddaughter, and that all just got taken away. We loved on her hard and she loved on us hard, and that's why we're here today. That is Salata Isako speaking about the death of her mother in a Queensland prison. The coronial inquest into the matter continues in Townsville today. Uh, stay tuned because coming up shortly is your news wrap with producer Talia Auli-Itia. Here at ABC Radio Australia, we've tripled our Pacific-focused content, which means we're sounding more and more Pacific every day. Tune in across the week to hear a fresh new lineup of Pacific voices and shows on your favourite subjects like sport, music and culture. Go online to abc.net.au slash Pacific to find out more. ABC Radio Australia, yours in the Pacific. Welcome back. Yes, it is Pacific Beat here with Aggie. Uh, we are heading into your news wrap where we head around uh, the region to see what is the latest. This is provided by producer Talia Aulietia. With, with that, I say good morning. Good morning, Aggie. Hey, look, uh, Senate estimates confirm asylum seekers have been sent to Nauru. Yeah, so Senate estimates are a fun thing for Australia. Not so much the government departments, but it's where you find out a lot of information because um, – uh, people who head corporations like Australian Border Force are forced in front of senators who ask questions and we as the media listen in to those estimates to find out stuff. And the Australian government has been accused of outrageous secrecy after it was confirmed by Border Force in Senate estimates yesterday that 11 asylum seekers were sent to Nauru. It's the first transfer to immigration detention in nine years to the island. Now, The Guardian reports that 
that the head of Operation Sovereign Borders, um, who is Rear Admiral Justin Jones, confirmed that they were transferred from Australia to Nauru on the 7th of September. And of course, that is just months after the last people were removed. Officials refused to say where the boats originated, where they were intercepted, how many boats there were, and if there were any miners in the cohort. Green Senator Nick McKim said the refusal to answer questions about, quote, on water matters lacked transparency and was consumed in that outrageous secrecy. Yeah, I can only imagine. Okay, well, we'll keep our eyes and ears on that story. But uh, we head to PNG, where a school linked to the leaked exam papers uh, faced possible deregistration. Mm, this intense. is a story that I have been following. And the latest development is that PNG's Education Sec- Secretary says the leak of Grade 10 Business Studies and Agricultural Question Papers earlier this month has been traced back to a private school in Eastern Highlands Province. Now, the Post Courier chose not to name the school, but say that education uh, Secretary, rather, Dr. Uke Kombra confirmed that it was a school in Garoka. The leak was traced back to the school because the exam papers had this special cover with a red strip of tape, which showed when it had been tampered with. Now, Dr. Kombra said cheating will not be taken lightly and police will be making arrests. He says that once the investigation is completed, if there is sufficient evidence, the school will be deregistered, deregistered rather, and excluded from from administrating, administrating national exams. Dr. Combra also confirmed the arrest of a man in Jiwaka province who allegedly broke into a school to steal exam papers. Goodness, that's intense, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> uh, this one, oh... Finally, the world's oldest dog has died. I know, this is not Pacific News, <laughs> but this is where you get the things that Talia reads and makes her feel something. And so, a, a little bit. Yeah, it's the one for the water cooler. <laughs> this is the news story I'm bringing you because Guinness World Records has confirmed that the world's all, oldest dog, a dog named Bobby, who mm. is a purebred Refiro do Elentejo, um, has died aged 31 at his home in Portugal. His death was announced on social media by vet Dr. Karen Becker, who met Bobby several times, saying, quote, despite outliving every dog in history, his 11,478 days on earth would never be enough for those who loved him. His owner has uh, has attributed his longevity to a number of factors, including always eating what he described as human food. Now, Bobby was declared the world's oldest dog in February, beating an Australian cattle dog called Bluey, who had held the record since 1939. Pretty impressive. 31. I'm 36. I'm only five years older than that dog. I'm not going to say how old I am now because it just makes me feel even older, but it reminds me of my dog back home. I know. Ah, Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you, Talia, for bringing our news wrap this morning. Hey, look, stay tuned because still on the program, we've got police and community groups rallying together to make their neighbourhoods safer and the latest updates on how residents of Maui are doing since the wildfires in August. I'm Maggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. 
Well, welcome back to Pacific Beats. When a Fijian Randy Jolly moved to Australia for work, he never imagined he'd end up on a remote tropical island, often considered part of Melanesia. But being in the Torres Strait, he's discovered a deep historical connection between his new home and his old one. Marin Farr caught up with him on Thursday Island. On one of Australia's most remote islands, a carver ceremony is taking place. It's a Saturday night on Thursday Island in the Torres Strait, and a group of locals are gathering to celebrate 53 years of Fijian independence. We are so excited because we were planning to have a small one, yeah, just close friends. And uh, surprisingly, we ended up, half of the community came to the celebration. Randy Chale helped organise the event. Originally from Kandavu in Fiji, he's come to work on Thursday Island, or TI, as it's sometimes known. I came here as a baker in the shop, uh, as a baker in the TI. He's one of three Fijians who have come to the Torres Strait under the Australian government's seasonal worker program. Being on a remote island wasn't what he originally expected. I never dreamt to be to be here because usually when you talk about Australia, you live in the city. Being here makes him feel closer to home. Probably somehow we are connected to TI and the Torres Strait because Torres Strait, I believe, come from the Melanesian group. So fortunate to be here in TI. He says he loves the sense of community. It's a community base. You happens to talk to anyone on the street when you walk by. Uh, you can say hello to anyone on the street. A vast archipelago between mainland Australia and Papua New Guinea, the Torres Strait has close historical ties with the Pacific. Hundreds of Pacific Islanders were brought to the region to work on pearl luggers and fishing boats during the 1800s, often as slaves. Some married and had children with local Indigenous people. Randy Jale says the historical connections are still noticeable today. I've met some Fijian uh, friends here. They've been here for a while. Uh, some that married here to, to the tourist islanders. One of those is Thursday Island resident Louisa O'Connor. My father's side is Tongan Fijian from Nukualofa, eh, from the royal family uh, Peleaki village in Tonga, Nukualofa. Uh, that's where my grandfather from my father's side mm-hmm. and my mum's side Fiji and Kaurag Aboriginal. She says her Aboriginal and Pacific Island heritage are equally important. I believe that you are not as strong as you are spiritually if you don't acknowledge all of them. The black birding, mm-hmm. the slavery, all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's part of my heritage. For her, Celebrating Fiji Day was a treat. Well, I really enjoyed it because of the kava ceremony. You know, kava is a traditional drink, ceremonial drink, uh, which is normally done by men. It's a men's business. Mm-hmm. So, so the ceremony was done by all these men, uh, including my husband, who's a chairperson of the Kaurag Native Title Aboriginal Corporation up here. Randy Chale agrees. The event was a huge success, and he says it definitely won't be the last. We have now planned for another events, upcoming events. Uh, I believe it's going to be a bigger one, bigger than this one, and uh, we're so excited about it. 
That's Fijian seasonal worker Randy Chale ending Marion Farr's report. Police hunt for two masked murderers and teen boys' fatal stabbing. Three males charged with murder over stabbing death of teenager. And 14-year-old boy dies after being hit by a car and then stabbed multiple times. Those are just some of the headlines that have gripped the western suburbs of Melbourne, where a heavily concentrated Pacific community resides. But one Pacifica community advocate is determined to change the narrative by creating a safe space for youth at the newly opened drop-in centre. Sam Brown, who initiated the program, says once you see a need, it's our responsibility to fulfil that need. There are a lot of services that, I mean, with the right intention, try to run initiatives down here, but none of them have young people that they've spent so much time with that when they leave, the young people say, I love you. And a lot of the young people in this area that I work with, especially a lot of the gang members that we visit in Parkville, that's the... um, that's normality, like we'll, we'll, we'll visit, we'll connect, we'll engage, and then at the end of it, they're like, oh, I love you, Sam. So, in that respect, it's, it's the first of its kind because they haven't had someone in this area that um, these young people feel they have, to have that type of connection. Yeah. They have youth services down here, they have different organisations down here, but it's, they haven't had the right people, and now they, like, now, and now they do. So then what's, what is the ultimate goal? What would you like to see come out of this for Prince Town? Yeah, ultimate goal is for, for this reserve, short to midterm is for this reserve to be given back to the community. Uh, Long term, I've already, like, speaking to the, um, you know, some of the local council and youth services, as I've told them, time is the, um, the most value, valuable commodity. The more, the more time I spend with our young people, the more they value me, the more they value me, the more they trust me. Um, and once that's established, uh, then they'll do whatever you you say, and they'll they'll, they'll listen and they'll follow. And but that like presence is key. So I've told the council I need a permanent spot, um, and you know, fingers crossed. Hopefully that eventuates at some point. But I told them like, they were happy to come on board. But I said I won't pay for it because mm. you know, I'm doing the, we're doing the community a service. Like I, a lot of people don't realize. Even today, someone was asking, "Oh, what's your role?" I said, oh, I work in the local high school. Now, what's your role here? Well, I, I, I started the initiative, but like, I, there's no funding. I don't have any backing. It was just saw a need, and that's what we do as people. Yeah. Identify the need, and if not, if not me, then who? And, and, and that was, the, that, like I said before, that was, it was a no-brainer. But there's obviously a bit of a collaboration, right? I've seen the police here. Yep. I've seen other local uh, youth organisations or spaces, people that are in those spaces. Yep. What are what are their roles? They're here because of the relationship yep. that I've built. And like I always tell people, always ask me, oh, um, why, how, why do you engage with people so easily? And it's my, my honest answer has always been because I do a damn good job. Um, and and that, I think with the services being here and the police being involved, it's just it's just recognising the fact that we do do a good job, um, and you know people, the young people do gravitate towards us, and um, the police were really quick to jump out uh, to to want to work together because they're the ones that have to deal with all the youth crime around here, and and they saw the impact that it had on some of the um, some of the common young people that we were working with together. So often there is a bit of a distrust between the police and some of the youth in the area. What I saw today was a bit of trust being developed. Is that what you want to see more of 
Yeah, and I think part of that part of that journey as well has been um, trying to help the police get an understanding of our young people. Because mm. and Melbourne is still very young. Within the school, for example, you know, every second young person in St Albans is, is, is bus, has Busfika heritage. Whereas 15, 20 years ago in St Albans, they might be, you'd be lucky to see one in every second class. Uh, so it's still a very young culture here in, in Australia. And so why do our young people hang out in, in big groups? And, and, you know, just small things like that. There's a couple of really great, um, in particular, the senior sergeant, um, Sox, who's been really proactive in the space, making sure that um, that collaboration is healthy and, mm. and see, you know, for the sake of seeing our young people thrive. So, When a child would just want to come in and hang out, what, what can they expect to be doing when they, when they come through? Hang out. So, oh. yeah, so honestly, the, yeah. like it's... Um, like, for example, after school, there's, there's like three or four local high schools around here. Where, you know, my school is 1,800 young people. At least 70% of them will walk past this park, but not through it. Um, and so it was really important to, for them to understand that this is a safe space. But that's yeah. the win, like, mm. is just getting kids through, like, to walk through and feel safe. Like, you know, you're looking out here, you've got the oval, you've got the tennis courts, basketball courts, playgrounds, but it's empty. Like, mm. even though we've had a great time today, there's no one here, it's down like savings, it's 28 degrees, but there's no one here. Some of the guys that are normally drinking on the pack bench out today kicking a footy with the police and some of the other locals, but that's a win. Like when I say, you know, giving it back to the community, that's what they can expect to be able to walk through this park without worrying about someone pulling them life on them. Because that's like, life crime is really prevalent here in, um, in Victoria, but especially in this area. Yeah, we're just across the road from St Albans Station where people are pulling out machetes regularly. And it's already committed to the to the um, the club that next season their, their journeys will be back here because and like that's how confident I am in the work that we're doing. So, and I've already asked the council for this building. We're going to dream big, man. <laughs> what would be your message then to to parents, to kids about saying, "Hey, we're here." Yeah, bring them yeah. down, and even on um uh, like the amount of times I've said to parents in the past is, you know, the, half the reason why our young people, or why we lose half our young people is because we're just not there. We don't know what they're doing and give them a chance, be present, um, and we'll see our kids become significant. And that's community advocate Sam Brown. Now, August 8 is one of Hawaii's darkest days when wildfires swept through Maui, killing more than 100 people and displacing thousands. Nearly two months on, the town of Lahaina is facing the gigantic task of rehoming its community, with one man helping to connect homeowners with the displaced residents. So joining us live is Maui-born native Hawaiian software developer Matt Jahowski. With that, I say aloha, Matt, and welcome to the show. Aloha Avakea from Maui. Yeah, thank you very much, Matt, for joining us this morning. Look, firstly, I know it's been a tough couple of months. How have you and uh, the community of Lahaina been? Um, well, I don't live in Lahaina, but I have friends there, and you know, the community includes the whole island. But it's been it's been very difficult, and I think one of the toughest things as we approach, you know, two and a half, three months after the fire is we still have over 3,000 families, families who lost their housing in the fire, who still don't have long-term housing. Um, They're living in hotels, they're living in family and friends' homes, uh, and some of them have to move. You know, they've moved seven times since the fires with kids. 
So that's uh, it's been very difficult for people to begin to find closure and start to rebuild their lives. And I hear that you actually sort of opened up your home to families that were in need. How are they doing now? Oh, um, I mean, from what I hear, they're, they're doing good. We're trying to give them a lot of space uh, so they can, you know, begin their process of rebuilding. But yeah, we uh, personally are able to house two families. Um, and uh, one of the families has three young kids. And we're just very grateful to be able to offer that to our community. Mm. Which which really does lead me to this whole Maui Hale match, which uh, you as a software developer, my goodness, was this a bit of a no-brainer for you? Was it easy to create? Uh, it was a no-brainer for me. And the funny thing is, once I identified that, you know, there was no easy way for landlords to connect with, with these displaced families, I thought I could implement the site in a week. Um, it ended up taking me a month and a half because uh, I mostly had to work on it after my kids went to bed every night. But um, yeah, finally it's it's out and it's live and it's been helping people for the past two and a half weeks. Wow. I mean, yeah, please explain how it all works though. Yeah, so the, the goal is just that we have so many displaced families and um, I want to make it as easy as possible for landlords and homeowners to connect directly to them. So landlords come to our site, they enter the information on their home, like where it's located, you know, how many bedrooms they have, what kind of rent they're asking per month. And once they submit that information, I show them a list of all the families that match those parameters, that match where the home is, the month, the monthly rent, how many people they can house. Um, and then if they both opt in, kind of like a dating site, they have to both opt in. Um, then I share contact information and they take it from there and hopefully sign a lease. Um, so I'm just trying to be a p- platform to connect people. Absolutely. So yeah, if you don't mind repeating, how many have actually signed up? And has there been any sort of challenges that you've experienced uh, during this time? Yeah. Yeah. So we've been out for about two and a half weeks and we've had... Um, 669 families, displaced families, sign up so far, and that represents 2,000 people. Um, It's been a lot harder to get landlords to sign up. Uh, We've had 70 landlords to sign up, but but I'm starting to learn, and I'm working actively on this, that we have a real housing supply issue. And the main issue is that on the entire island of Maui, there's about 3,000 long-term rentals. Well, that's as many displaced families as we have. And all these rentals currently have occupants. Um, But we have 24,000 second homes and short-term rentals that go to tourists. Uh, We have more than enough roofs to house these families. And the challenge becomes convincing these these homeowners, most of whom live on the mainland um, and are not very deeply connected to the community, convincing them to open their hearts and open their homes to be part of the solution. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, whether or not the island already had a housing crisis. Was anyone like actively working to try and solve the housing crises? Yeah, there's been there's been a lot of people, you know, passionately working to solve the problem. I think the issue is that um, tourism brings in a lot of money. And, and government, like everywhere, is slow and inefficient. But um, there's some really great organizations like Housing Hawaii's Future and some council members who tried to make uh, strides in housing. But, I mean, with the fire and this extra, you know, these extra 3,000 families displaced, it's just the problem has become so, so severe so quickly. Um, so we really need to have some action. Now. Yeah, yeah, I'm wondering because I know it. It's a very emotional time, even two months on, for residents who have had provisional access back to their properties. So is there like talks of a rebuild or, again, still uh, a mini still in motels and hotels at the moment? 
Mm. Uh, almost everybody is still in hotels. Of those 3,000 families, we still have about 27, or sorry, 2,700 that are spread out across um, approximately 36 hotels. Uh, there has been talk about rebuilding, and there's people, you know, working very diligently to bring um, really short-term housing solutions like tiny homes online. The biggest problem is the the very first units for those are six months to a year out, and um, resources, in particular water, water supply is really going to limit what we're able to do, especially in West Maui, where most of, most of our families want to be. And that's why I think what I'm trying to do with my site and connecting people to the homes that are already built, that already have utilities, um, is so important. We can't leave these families in hotels for six months to a year. They're, they're going to start leaving. They're yeah. already leaving. Um, and that's going to destroy our community. Yeah, so I'm really working to house them now. Which is beautiful to, to hear. Uh, you're providing critical and up-to-date information. I mean, would you hope that the government uses this data that you've collected to somehow maybe better regulate policies moving forward? Uh, 100%. You know, I never set out to to be the clearinghouse for, you know, um, our, our housing needs data post-fire, but it, it kind of happened by accident that I have the most accurate data on what our families need in terms of housing, how much rent they can pay, where they want to be, how big their families are. So I've been working um, overtime to try to get everyone in government to pay attention to me. Um, and, and I'm starting to have some success. I'm hoping to have a meeting with the mayor this week. And that's really important because the mayor in the county has a lot, a lot of control over county uh, property regulations. And that is really good news to hear, Matt. Uh, I hear also that your sister was part of the initial uh, collection of data. How did that go about? Yeah, that I mean, my sister, um, my sister Holly is great. She you know, we all grew up here. She lives in California now, but as soon as the fires happened, she flew down here to help out any way she could. And there's a, a nonprofit organization called Maui Rapid Response. And so she started working with their housing team and they were going around, you know, getting people to fill out Google Forms if they needed housing or if they could offer housing. And then they had volunteers looking at the spreadsheets from those forms and trying to connect people. And it was just a really slow process that ground to a halt when everyone had to go back to work. And that was a big motivation for me in building this site also. I just saw that, especially with volunteers having to work again, um, we needed something that scaled better. And, and that's a great place for technology to step in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, gosh, would you like to see this be implemented to other countries? I'm thinking especially in the Pacific where often data collection or the reporting of it is quite low. Yeah, I, I think data is so important because if you don't actually know the numbers, you can't even begin to, to solve the problem. I mean, here in particular, everyone knows the rent is too expensive. But with my data, I'm showing that actually, like for a one bedroom apartment, the rent is $600 a month too expensive for most families. For a two bedroom apartment, it's $1,100 a month too expensive for most families. Once you have those numbers, you can actually start to make real solutions. You can put dollar figures on real solutions to close that gap and house the people. Um, so, yeah, I've already fielded questions from um, the island of Kauai about deploying there. And I just think more data helps everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Just quickly want to say, where can people head to? Of course, to the listeners, those from Hawaii who might be needing uh, this help, where can they uh, go to? Yeah, thank you. Um, the website is MauiHaleMatch.org. Hale is the Hawaiian word for house. Uh, so that's spelled M-A-U-I-H-A-L-E. M-A-T-C-H dot org, MauiHaleMatch.org. Beautiful. Uh, look, we just want to say mahalo, Matt, for all the work that you're doing and really just helping those residents back in uh, Maui. So thank you for your time this morning. 
Mahalo to you all and thanks for shining a light on our housing crisis. No worries. Again, software developer Matt Jahowski, creator of Maui Hale Match here on Pacific Beat. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Time to take a look at back, uh, sorry, back at one of our main stories today. Tropical cyclone Lola has strengthened to a Category 4 storm expected to hit Luganville, Vanuatu's second largest city. Uh, evacuation centres have been set up and people are being told to stock up on food and water. The cyclone is now directly affecting the northern provinces, Torpa and Panama. People advise to get covered somewhere strong and safe and also people will expect to experience power outages for some period of time. That's Jamie Brown, ABC's reporter in Port Vila. We'll be back same time again, 6am at PNG time tomorrow, but you can listen to us this afternoon at 3pm at PNG time.